In January of the following year, Stella's daughter Cynthia went into the local police station. She had some information for officers and it related to Bruce's death. This is Red Rum, stories about the true victims of crime. Episode 62, Bruce Nickel and Susan Snow. Around 30 miles south of Portland in the US sits Colton City. Colton is historically Swedish because of its proximity to logging and the community remains small and close-knit. Stella Stevenson was born there and grew up with her mother Alva and father George. At age 16 she became pregnant and gave birth to a baby girl, Cynthia. It wasn't long after this that Stella moved to California where she met and married a man who she went on to have another daughter with. This daughter she called Leah. The marriage didn't work out, and in 1974, Stella met and married a man called Bruce Nickel. The pair relocated to Auburn, where Bruce worked as a heavy equipment operator. He struggled with alcohol addiction, which put a strain on their relationship. However, after Bruce got sober, Stella continued drinking, although she was adamant she didn't have a problem. Bruce struggled being around someone who drank a lot. Things were tough as Stella and Bruce began to drift apart. Stella filled her days with going to the local library, where she sometimes stayed to read, but often checked out books to take home with her. She also began taking care of fish, equipping out the home she and Bruce shared with a fully functioning home aquarium full of fish. On the 5th of June, 1986, Bruce came home from work as usual, arriving at 4.10 p.m. Stella was in the kitchen preparing that evening's meal, while Bruce made his way to the bathroom to take a shower. Stella heard the shower turn off, and Bruce emerged moments later and turned on the TV. Bruce had complained to Stella that he had a headache, so decided to take some extra-strength Excedrin pain capsules to help soothe his headache. Unfortunately though, the pills hadn't helped Bruce at all. He told Stella he was feeling lightheaded. He stopped at the doorway and continued speaking, saying that he felt like he was going to pass out. A few moments later, he actually collapsed. Stella dialed 911 and called for an ambulance. While she was on the phone, she told the operator that Bruce was still breathing, but it was a quote, deep type of breathing. Emergency services arrived soon after and Stella came to the door. She ushered them inside and towards Bruce, who by this point was laying on his back on the floor in front of the sofa. He was gasping for air and his whole face had turned bright red. Paramedics fit him up with an oxygen mask and called for further support from air rescue. The helicopter arrived quickly and Bruce was airlifted to Harborview Medical Center. Stella and her mother drove to the hospital and made their way inside. The hospital staff member that met them asked the pair to stay in the area just outside of the emergency room. They had to wait there whilst the professionals continued working on saving Bruce. They hadn't been able to work out what was wrong with him and they needed to figure it out as a matter of urgency if they were going to have any chance of saving him. It wasn't long, however, that a doctor came out and told them that they had done everything they could, but they weren't able to save him. Bruce was pronounced dead that Thursday evening. The medical team concluded that Bruce had died of natural causes, in this case emphysema, a lung condition that causes shortness of breath and the airflow obstruction is associated with increased mortality. Stella told them she was devastated. 
She didn't even know Bruce was unwell and had had no time to say goodbye. It all happened so quickly. In fact, Stella struggled to accept that emphysema could have been his cause of death. She called the medical examiner's office back to say there must have been some mistake, but she was informed that that was what was listed. Across town, less than a week later on the 11th of June, 40-year-old Susan Snow had been getting ready for her job as a bank manager when she'd felt a headache come on. She woke up her 15-year-old daughter Hayley and then headed back down the hall to her ensuite bathroom to take a shower. She also pulled an extra-strength Excedrin bottle out of the medicine cabinet and took two capsules. Her husband Paul had also taken two capsules a few moments earlier because of his ongoing arthritis pain. He'd then left the house and headed to work. Meanwhile, Hayley jumped into her bathroom shower. A few moments later, she heard a bang next door. It came from her mum's bathroom. Although Hayley did have a bad feeling initially, she shrugged it off. Quote, that's really stupid. She's not just going to fall on her face. Then Hayley got out of the shower and continued getting ready for school. But after more time had passed, and she realised not only had she not heard from her mum, she also could still hear the bathroom tap gushing water, and it had been a while since she'd gotten out of the shower. Hayley went into her mum's ensuite, and that's when she saw Susan lying stiff on the floor. Hayley pushed the tap into the off position and knelt down beside her mum. She couldn't figure out what had happened. Susan was breathing, but only just. Hayley screamed at her mum to wake up, but she just lay there, her body almost frozen still, gasping for air. A little after 6.30am, Hayley dialed 911 and asked for emergency services to be sent. Quote, I think my mother fell while I was in the shower, and she's breathing and everything, but something's wrong with her. Emergency services arrived and found that Susan had a very faint pulse. They attempted to revive her, and soon after that, she was rushed to Harborview Medical Centre, the same hospital that just six days earlier had been witness to Bruce's last moments. Susan remained in the hospital bed unconscious, but later that same day, she died. There was no reason doctors could initially state as to why or how Susan had died, and so her body was sent to have an autopsy. The assistant medical examiner, Janet Miller, was conducting the autopsy when she smelt the scent of bitter almonds. Those of you familiar with true crime cases that revolve around poisoning might recognise this smell as belonging distinctly to cyanide. The bitter almond smell is a very specific sign of the presence of cyanide, but not everyone can smell it, and cyanide doesn't always give off this smell. Even so, Janet Miller suspected foul play and conducted further tests to search for the presence of cyanide. She found it. Susan had deadly levels in her system. Specifically, her cause of death was listed as acute cyanide poisoning. An investigation was launched and officers attended the crime scene of Susan's bathroom. They expanded the search outwards throughout the house, searching for any signs of cyanide. And it wasn't long before they identified that it had come from an extra strength Excedrin bottle. Inside, forensics found that there were 56 capsules left out of 60 and three of the remaining capsules left contained enough cyanide to be fatal. The manufacturers of this specific Excedrin were notified and did a recall of all their extra-strength Excedrin capsules in the Seattle area. They located another contaminated bottle of capsules in a grocery store nearby. 
News spread fast of the possibility of further contaminated Excedrin capsules, and a number of pharmaceutical companies came together to offer a reward for finding out who was responsible. The vice president of the manufacturing company made a statement, quote, Although we believe this to be a local, isolated incident, we are also asking all stores throughout the United States to quarantine Excedrin capsules for the time being, and to remove Excedrin capsules from store shelves until we have more information on the situation in Auburn. He added that the company hadn't received any threats or communication related to the poisoning. As the news spread, and the bottles were recalled in this huge campaign by the manufacturers, Stella Nicholl told her neighbour that she'd started to wonder if Bruce's death was related to the Excedrin poisoning of Sue Snow. She had heard a news report that described Paul's version of his wife's symptoms and subsequent death, and the symptoms matched Bruce's. She made a call to the police department. Bruce had taken the same extra-strength Excedrin just moments before he died too. She noted that the batch number was the same as the one that had killed Susan Snow. She told officers that Bruce had been having problems with a returning headache over the week leading up to his death. He'd been taking three or four capsules each day to help relieve them. Stella gave two bottles of the capsules she had left, one of which had been the one Bruce had taken the capsules from, to the investigating officers. Forensic tests were conducted on the two bottles, and they were found to both have traces of cyanide. The tests also confirmed that the cyanide contamination in both bottles had come from the same source, meaning that they'd been poisoned by the same person. The investigations progressed to looking specifically at the manufacturing line, turning their focus to Morrisville, North Carolina site, where the Excedrin batch had been made. They didn't, however, find any trace of cyanide. It was extremely unlikely, if not impossible, that the initial contamination was at the manufacturer level. The investigation team turned their focus towards consumers of the product, or people who would be further down the line near the consumption level. The scale of the investigation ramped up because of the fear of an unknown culprit with such a deadly force was free, still living amongst the residents of Washington and the surrounding areas. This meant that the FBI took over investigations and began looking into contamination. They asked Stella where she usually shopped, and where she bought the bottles of Excedrin from. She told investigators that she couldn't remember exactly, but she was pretty sure the opened bottle that Bruce had taken capsules from was likely one she bought around two weeks earlier, either at Albertsons North or the Johnny's Market. She did know where she bought the unopened bottle though, and that was one that had also been poisoned. She brought it from Johnny's in Kent just two or three days before Bruce had died. She also told the investigating officer that she had come home from Bruce's funeral and felt an awful backache come on. She'd taken two capsules of Excedrin for this, out of the same bottle that had the poison capsules in it that had killed Bruce. Quote, My God, can you believe it? I could have taken some with cyanide in them too. Both of the murdered victim's partners filed separate lawsuits against the Excedrin manufacturer. The forensic tests carried out on the capsules and bottles taken away from Stella and Bruce's household and Susan and Paul's household showed that there was only one foreign fingerprint. Not wholly surprising, the murderer could easily have worn gloves. They found a total of 23 cyanide-laced capsules and in 17 of those, they also found a foreign green substance. 
the green substance was identified as a chemical called algae destroyer. The FBI turned their investigations towards the people who were statistically most likely to have committed the murders. This included both Susan's husband Paul and Bruce's wife Stella. Investigating officers found out that Paul and Susan had met eight years earlier when Susan's daughter from a previous relationship, Exa, had introduced her mum to her classmate's dad, Paul. The two hit it off right away and it wasn't long before they started dating and the relationship became serious. The pair had an on-again, off-again relationship but eventually moved in together and settled down. Throughout their relationship, although Paul told investigators that they had a good relationship and rarely argued, it became clear from other family members that the relationship hadn't been all smiles and rainbows. Haley spoke of Paul and her mum yelling at each other often. She said her mum was often upset and there'd even been an affair on Paul's part, which had played out in the form of continuous arguments over the following few years. Paul agreed to let officers search the house, and they did so. They pulled out a number of bottles and boxes of prescription medication and non-prescription medication. During this search, Exa heard Paul tell the detective that Susan always bought capsules, but she knew this wasn't the case. All of the prescription and non-prescription medication was in pill form, and the Excedrin capsules were a one-off. Paul added that the reason Susan had bought more was because just a few days before she died, he'd taken a few Excedrins and said they were almost out. He told Susan this, and the next time he'd returned home, she'd stocked up on another bottle of Excedrin. The FBI's suspicions were heightened when the medical examiner told them that Paul's story had changed. Originally, he'd said Susan had taken Excedrin for chronic headaches, but another time, he said that she would take Excedrin every morning because it contained caffeine. As part of their investigations, the FBI wanted to conduct polygraph tests on both partners of the victims. Susan's husband Paul took some convincing, but he did eventually take and pass a polygraph. This didn't out and out warrant his innocence, but there was no evidence solid enough to put him under arrest. And as the days passed and more evidence came to light, it became more and more unlikely that he had poisoned Susan. Bruce Nichols' wife, Stella, decided not to take a polygraph. When asked by the press why she declined to take one, Stella's lawyer said that she was too shaken up to subject herself to that kind of questioning, especially because she'd not done anything wrong and they still hadn't found the person who had poisoned her husband. Just over five months after the death of her husband, Stella changed her mind about having a polygraph test and was taken into the station to have one. She believed it was the only way to get the FBI to agree to taking her off the suspect list so that she could claim for Bruce's life insurance. After taking the test, however, officers informed Stella that she'd failed it. Stella pleaded her innocence and ultimately, as we know, polygraph tests aren't admissible in court and so officers had to look for evidence that pointed undoubtedly towards Stella as the killer. They weren't able to find any evidence she'd purchased cyanide, Cyanide proved relatively easy to gain access to, though. It was found in most high school science classes, as well as being a chemical often found in industries like jewellery making. She was also asked about Bruce's life insurance. Stella said that she thought Bruce was covered by a state policy that covered him for $5,000 basic life, 
$5,000 death and dismemberment, and it had an optional life of $25,000 and of $100,000 for accidental death and dismemberment. So a total of $135,000. She added that both herself and Bruce had added a further $20,000 from Bank Cardholders of America. About three months after Bruce's death, Stella called the insurance company to try and find out when she could expect the insurance money. The FBI looked into the details of where all of the contaminated bottles of Excedrin had come from. Altogether, there were a total of five contaminated bottles, two of which had come from Stella handing them over. Stella had already stated that she'd bought the two bottles at different times from different stores in two different places. Of the 15,000 bottles recalled and examined for cyanide contamination, only five of them were contaminated and that included the two Stella had given over. The chances that Stella Nickel would have bought two of them in completely different stores at different times was extremely unlikely. The investigating team looked into Stella's background and saw she had a previous arrest on suspicion of felonious beating of her daughter when she had come into school with bruises over her leg. It was reported that Stella had hit her daughter with a wooden pole, although Stella insisted that she was just smacking her as a, quote, good old-fashioned spanking. Investigators also found that Stella had been convicted of forgery and sentenced to serve six months in Orange County Jail. She had forged welfare checks and cashed them, as well as using her cousin's food stamps. In January of the following year, Stella's daughter Cynthia went into the local police station she had some information for officers about her mother, and it related to Bruce's death. Cynthia told them that her mother had spoken to her a number of times about her dislike for Bruce. Although Stella had been the one to insist Bruce get help for his alcohol addiction, when he had done just that and completely stopped drinking, Stella would constantly speak about how boring he was now, and that she no longer wanted to be in a relationship with him. She didn't want to be around him in any sense. Stella told Cynthia that she wanted him dead. Cynthia told officers that her mother had even admitted to trying to kill him before. She'd attempted to poison him with foxglove. Foxglove is a pinkish purple flower that can grow up to two meters tall. Ingesting any part of the plant can lead to poisoning that can result in nausea, headaches, skin irritation and diarrhea. Although the chemicals that foxglove contain can affect the heart, recorded poisoning from the plant are very rare. Cynthia went on to say that her mother had failed to use foxglove to poison Bruce. The most that had happened was that he had become a bit tired for a few days. She continued saying that Stella had gone on to research other ways to poison Bruce. During her many trips to the library, she checked out books that focused on poisons. Of all of the books that related to poison that had been checked out under Stella's name, forensic investigations identified Stella's fingerprints were on various cyanide-related pages. One detective remembered the green specks in the contaminated capsules. That same detective also remembered that Stella owned fish tanks full of fish. The detective visited local pet stores, showing the managers photos of people of interest who might have at one point been into the store. At Fish Gallery and Pets, a store across town, he showed the manager photos upon photos of people, asking if he recognised anyone as a customer. The manager stopped when he got to one. He couldn't remember her name, but she definitely had been into the store. The woman he had identified was Stella Nichol. 
He told the detective that she'd asked for algae destroyer, which they didn't carry, but he had agreed to order some in specifically for her. He said there had been a problem with moisture seeping onto the insides of the tablet packets, which meant that he told her and anyone who bought the algae destroyer that the best way to get it to work would be to crush it up and add hot water to it. It became clear to detectives that whoever had crushed the cyanide and added it to the Excedrin capsules had done so on the same service that they'd previously crushed the algae destroyer tablets. The FBI were covering all bases and worked with the insurance company to ensure no money was released to Stella before she was taken off the suspect list. The signature on one of the life insurance applications was studied by an expert and it quickly became clear that Bruce's signature had been forged and it was said with utter certainty that the forgery had been done by Stella. It wasn't long after this that Stella was arrested. She was indicted on five counts of product tampering and causing the death of two people. Stella continued to deny any involvement in the murders. In 1988, Stella went on trial. The prosecution said that she had attempted to copy the 1982 Tylenol murders four years earlier. They said that she had killed Bruce, and then, in an attempt to make it appear as though his death was the result of a serial killer randomly targeting Excedrin users, she placed more painkillers contaminated with cyanide on another store shelf. Her goal was to increase life insurance benefits. If Bruce was found to have died because of natural causes, as was the case before the poisoning of Susan Snow, Stella would have received around $100,000 less than the life insurance policy she held over him for death as a result of an event of this kind. This line of motive was backed up by Cynthia's claims that her mum had spoken to her before Bruce's death about what they could do with the insurance money if he did die. Cynthia testified at trial, as well as testifying about the potential motive and poison-based library books. Cynthia also spoke of her mother's plotting to kill Bruce over the previous few years. She said her mother spoke about poisoning his iced tea with cocaine and about hiring a hitman, where she explained her mum had been specific in suggesting that he could be shot in traffic or he could be run head-on by a truck or run off the road. She also spoke about the plant poisoning plan her mother had had and that one time she'd secretly given him small black seeds that came from a plant. At trial, she couldn't remember the exact name, but she said it was either foxglove or hemlock. She confirmed what she'd previously told detectives, that her mother had given Bruce the seeds and they hadn't had any real effect on him. Cynthia told the court that, quote, It upset me tremendously, of course, that my mother would kill my dad, but it really, really bothered me that someone we didn't know, had never seen before in our lives, had no effect on our lifestyle, our family or anything, was dead because of something that I was almost sure my mother did, and their whole family was basically destroyed because of it. When asked why Cynthia hadn't said anything to Bruce before it was too late, she said that she hadn't had any proof and didn't think he'd believe her. The defence wanted to argue that Cynthia had only come forward after a reward was offered for further information on the cyanide poisoning, but the prosecution argued that if that line was to be presented, then the polygraph result would have to be presented, as the prosecution believed Cynthia had actually come forward after learning her mother had failed the polygraph. At the trial, one of Stella's friends testified that she had been with her a few days before Bruce's death, when Stella had bought two bottles of Excedrin from the same store, not from two different stores as she'd always stated. 
It also came out that Stella had written to North Pacific Bank, who she owed money to and had fallen behind on her payments, stating that she was going to start paying them back monthly. She hadn't gotten any particular reason to think that she'd come into money at that point. It was four days later, though, that Bruce died and the insurance money was within reach. The paramedics on the scene were also questioned to their version of events on the day. One spoke about not thinking it was the right place, because usually they drive down the road, stopping when they find the caller standing outside, jumping up and down or flapping their arms to get attention. At Stella and Bruce's house, they had to wait. It was only after a few minutes that Stella slowly pulled the door open and beckoned them inside. The paramedic noted the lack of urgency and desperation for help. The trial was long and after three separate votes, the jury couldn't come to a unanimous decision with all but one jury member concluding Stella's guilt. And then, whilst jury discussions were ongoing, the judge received a written account from one of the jury that said, quote, a woman called me at home at 7pm and said, don't you all know that she failed a lie detector test? She hung up before I even had chance to realise what she was saying. I have tried to think who it could be, but I did not recognise the voice. It frightened me that someone sought out my home number and called me like this. I told my roommate about it shortly after this woman called, but I haven't told anyone else. Ultimately, after discussion with both the prosecution and defence, it was decided that given the inadmissibility of polygraphs and the fact that nothing on record, as per the trial, noted that Stella even took one, the trial would continue with all jurors staying on. Stella was found guilty on all charges receiving 90 years for each count of murder and a further 30 years for the tampering, all to run concurrently. She was eligible for parole in 2018. Meanwhile, Sue Snow's husband, Paul, spoke of his disappointment in the way the investigation was handled, stating that after they discovered Sue had died from cyanide poisoning, it took them three days to start the investigation. He also stated his distrust in Cynthia, stating that he didn't understand how she could know so much about the crime her mother committed but not be involved. Quote, At the very least, she could have come forward after Bruce died. She could have saved Sue. Stella Nichols' conviction moved Congress to enact tampering laws that came with harsh sentences. But even with the huge amount of evidence and the sentencing of Stella, there were a number of people who did believe her innocent. Private detectives Alfar and Paul Cialino took on Stella's case as what they believed to be a serious case of misjustice. Stella maintained her innocence, and the private detectives believed so undoubtedly in her that they took on almost two years of work without pay to try and help her prove her innocence. They said that money was the driving factor for many of the witnesses that testified at trial because of the huge reward offered by the Drug Manufacturers Trade Association. Cynthia was paid $250,000 for her help in the case. Stella's neighbour was paid $7,500 reward money. The fish store manager was paid $15,000 reward money. Cynthia said she didn't testify so that she could get the reward, and she wasn't even sure her mother was guilty, just that what she told at trial was true. After the trial, Cynthia decided to cut all ties and never saw her mother again. Meanwhile... Stella's legal team did file a request for a new trial, but it wasn't granted. In 2017, Stella was denied parole and it was recommended that she should serve the rest of her sentence in prison. 
quote, there is no proven or even reasonable probability that I will commit another offence when paroled. I am 78 years old and this is my first time in prison. I have always respected the officers and staff. Her further petitions for parole consideration after this, it's clear she takes apparent responsibility for the crimes she was convicted of. Quote, I am accused of not knowing the moral wrong I committed. Nobody knows better than I the depth of my heinous offence and how deeply it goes against the accepted standards of conduct. I am most remorseful for being responsible for the loss of two human lives. In 2022, Stella was again denied parole after Susan Snow's daughter, Hayley, made a heart-wrenching statement to the parole board. Quote, For me, watching my mother die was a nightmare. It created images I cannot erase from my memory. What was Stella thinking as she watched her own husband die the same way? Listening to her, watching her, and knowing she cannot face her victims makes it clear to me she has no remorse. Although she refuses to acknowledge us, she cannot be forgotten by us. She is the person we must face every opportunity we are given to bring any amount of justice possible to the dear person we lost, Sue Snow.